0: In the year 313 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, which made it legal for a person to be a Christian for the first time in the ancient world since Christianity began, effectively ending three centuries of state-sponsored persecution of the church. Then 67 years later, largely in response to Arianism, which is a false doctrine uh, that claimed to adhere to the Christian faith, but it also claimed Jesus was not eternally existent, uh, that he did not possess the divine essence of the Father, but was rather created by God the Father, which, of course we know is in contradiction to Biblical teaching throughout both Testaments. It's in contradiction to the Father's own words in Isaiah 43, 10 and 11, and of course, Jesus' own claims about Himself in the Gospels and in the Revelation. And so rather than putting His stamp of approval on Arianism, which was on the rise at the time, the new Emperor Theodosius I issued the Edict of Thessalonica in 380 AD, making Christianity the official state religion of the entire Roman Empire. And in that sweeping and truly astonishing move by the government of Rome, Christianity went from being counterculture to mainstream culture. In the centuries that followed, this profound change of status, what turned out to be really a, a cataclysmic shift for the church in the fourth century, was considered by most to be the triumph of the church over the world. In retrospect however many in modern history now consider that defining moment to actually be the triumph of the world over the church the reality is there's probably some truth in both of those statements because with the freedom to openly worship Jesus Christ certainly there came much greater access to the gospel of Jesus Christ which of course meant the gospel could now be spread much easier than before on the negative side however came the ability for people for the first time in history to profess faith in Christ without having to actually change anything in their lives personally. You could now profess to be a follower of Christ without there having to be any real meaning of significance to that claim other than uh, maybe the purpose of social acceptance because as a Christian Rather than being an outcast of society for following Christ as they previously were, you are now simply being a responsible and patriotic citizen of Rome by claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, it it didn't make sense anymore if you wanted to be accepted by the culture to claim to be anything but a Christian. And out of that came the rise of what we know today as cultural Christianity. So uh, two messages ago in this series, we talked about casual Christianity, a Christianity that costs you nothing. The last sermon in this series, we talked about complacent Christianity, a Christianity that, that produces nothing. And today we're going to talk about cultural Christianity, a Christianity that changes nothing. As we continue this series, working our way through the book of Hebrews, which is a subject, by the way, of uh, immense importance for us today because nowhere has cultural Christianity been more prevalent in the modern world than it has been in America. It's beginning to change, which may also end up being the best thing that ever happened to the American church, because being a true follower of Christ actually has little to do with what is culturally acceptable at any given point in history. Remember, the the church in its early stages of development and at several other points throughout history has been counter to the culture in just about every way possible. In fact, there's a biblical scholar, she's one of my favorite, Nancy Piercy, who has produced fascinating research on the church. She wrote this, it is a common assumption that in order to survive, churches must accommodate to the age. But in fact, the opposite is true. In every historical period, the religious groups that grow most rapidly are those that set believers at odds with the surrounding culture. As a general principle, the higher a group's tension with mainstream society, the higher its growth rate. That's fascinating. Because it suggests, according to the current statistical information that we have about the church and our culture, that the church is poised to enter a significant time of growth as our faith and convictions increasingly become more in tension with the sensibilities of pop culture. And that doesn't mean that our job, by the way, as disciples, uh, disciple makers will become easier, rather more effective as we faithfully labor for the cause of Christ. In other words, being the church may become increasingly more difficult as our path and what is culturally popular continue to diverge. But we can also expect a greater result from our ministry as the personal cost of following Christ becomes greater as well. Why is that? Because those who profess to follow Jesus Christ when they have nothing to lose by saying it don't have to mean it if they don't want to. Nothing has to necessarily change in their lives when at the same time the people who utter those words when everything they hold dear is at stake for simply uttering those words. Well well, now we're talking about followers of Christ who value their relationship with him. More than anything, they stand to lose, which is the very antithesis of cultural Christianity, which is not not even in the same universe as the faith that Jesus espoused during his time on the earth. Near the, the height of his popularity, he could hardly go anywhere without being accompanied by massive crowds of people. And of course, he often used those opportunities to perform some truly amazing miracles, both for individuals and sometimes on a large scale for crowds of people as a whole. Why? Because he loved them. So he healed people. He delivered people from all kinds of oppression. He gave people dignity. He fed them and cared for them. And of course, he taught them the truth about God and the kingdom of heaven. And often he invited them to become his followers. And that tends to be the way that we characterize Jesus' ministry on earth. I think that's how most people today, certainly uh, uh, professing Christians, would probably describe his interaction with other people then. Which is not wrong. It's just uh, incomplete. Because there's a significant amount of scripture in the Gospels that describes Jesus turning people away. And yet... We don't talk nearly as much about those stories because they don't really fit very well with the description of the Jesus that we want to follow today, right? Uh, everyone wants the Jesus that healed people. We all, we all want the Jesus that set people free. Of course we do. Everyone can agree on the Jesus that accepted people who were otherwise rejected by society. The Jesus who was a friend to sinners and outcasts. And without a doubt, those are all fitting descriptions of the Jesus that we profess to follow today. Yes, absolutely. However... We aren't nearly as keen on the same Jesus who turned people away. The same Jesus who offended the majority of the people who ever heard him speak. The same Jesus who demanded a litany of conditions from those who would ever dare to try and follow him. That's the Jesus we aren't nearly as apt to talk about, to tell others about, or even to ponder for ourselves too long, because that Jesus makes us uncomfortable. That Jesus is confrontational. That Jesus is demanding. That Jesus is downright offensive to most of the people who encounter him. Matthew, one of the disciples of Jesus, tells this story in his gospel account. He says, Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he's just surrounded by masses of people, very popular. He gave orders to go over to the other side. That would be the other side of the Sea of Galilee. In other words, Jesus is ready to leave the crowd of people behind. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man I have nowhere to lay my head. In other words, right before Jesus walks away from the crowd, a man says to him, teacher, take me with you. I will follow you wherever you go, to which Jesus replies, no, you won't. You won't. You like the idea of following me. You like the version of following me that you have in your mind, but the reality of actually following me is nothing like what you think it is. So don't fool yourself. Verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, "Lord, let me first go bury my father." And Jesus said to him, "Follow me, you leave the dead to bury their own dead." Matthew 8:18 8, through 22. In other words, if you want to follow me, I'm sorry, but someone else will have to go bury your father because following me has to take precedence over even your family obligations. How inconsiderate Jesus. How offensive. Why was Jesus so uncompromising with these people? Well, it's because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew that their commitment was based on an idea about him rather than an actual relationship with him. One of the second generation followers of Jesus and a traveling companion to the apostle Paul, Luke, records this story in his gospel account. Now great crowds accompanied him. Again, he's very popular at this point. And he turned and said to them, this is Jesus, He turns to the crowds and he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And the phrase to hate, by the way, was an ancient Hebrew idiom it meant to love less. So Jesus says, these people who are following him around, if you don't love me more than your own father more than your own mother, more than your own wife, more than your own children and brothers and sisters. In fact, if you don't love me more than you love yourself, you cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. To bear a Roman cross in the first century Mediterranean world was to suffer the most horrific death Imaginable. So Jesus says, if you're not willing to die to your own dreams and to your own ideas about how life should be for your own desires apart from me, then you cannot be my disciple. Verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and it is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man, look, he he began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you Who does not renounce all that he has. This is the cost of following Jesus. Then you cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 25 through 33. In other words, if you're not willing to pay the price. You understand we're not talking about works. We're talking about submission. Submission. Jesus says, if you're not willing to love me more than you love your family, more than you love yourself, in fact, if you're not willing to die to yourself, if you're not willing to renounce anything else in your life by putting me above everything else in your life, every single other relationship and desire and dream and aspiration that you have apart from me, then don't bother trying to follow me because you cannot be my disciple. He doesn't say, if I'm not everything to you, then you cannot be a good disciple or a committed disciple or one of my best disciples. No, he says, if I'm not the number one priority in your life, then you cannot be my disciple at all. In the Apostle John's gospel, uh, chapter 6, after Jesus preaches a particularly difficult message about the commitment required to follow him, John says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. John 6, verse 66. Now, let me ask you, do you think Jesus was surprised by that? Do you think he was sorry that he said what he said that caused all of those professing followers of his to walk away? not at all. He also didn't go chasing after them. Why not? Because he knew exactly what they were going to do before he ever opened his mouth, because he knew what was in their hearts. And so knowing good and well that they would walk away from him when he told them the truth about himself, he told them anyway. It's not because, uh, by the way, that he didn't love them. In fact, The entire reason he was willing to speak the truth to them as hard as he knew it would be for them to hear was precisely because he loved them. You see, he knew that as long as their hearts were set on other things more than they were on him, he knew their commitment to him would never last in the end. And so as far as Jesus was concerned, they were far better off with the discomfort of having to wrestle with the truth than they were with the comfort of believing a lie. So he sent them away. He sent them away frustrated and angry and offended because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew that their commitment to him was based on an idea about him rather than an actual relationship with him. So he sent them away because Jesus doesn't, listen, Jesus doesn't call us to follow him on our terms. He calls us to follow him on his terms. It's why he said the sower sows the word, Mark 4, 14. Jesus is the sower. He doesn't sow positive thoughts and good vibes. He doesn't sow motivational speeches. He doesn't sow good karma. Nor does he sow whatever he thinks will make you feel good or whatever is popular in the culture at any given point in history. No, Jesus Christ sows the truth, his word. And how that makes you feel is entirely dependent upon how you respond to that truth. Our job is to receive it, and yet he knew that not everyone would, and so he continues. Sometimes that truth, he says, is sown among thorns. There are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful, Mark 4:18 and 19. This is a description of people who profess faith in Christ, but because of the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, their faith doesn't last because they value those other things more than they value Jesus Christ, which I'm telling you is the very blight of cultural Christianity on the modern church today. The genesis of which actually we see long before the edicts of Roman emperors. uh, This pull, this desire for other things, which was evident even in the first century church, which we're going to see in our story today as the author continues his letter to the Hebrews. uh, Those Christians from the Hebrew faith who had supposedly come to Christ. Some had and some apparently hadn't in the early church. Let's read it together then, picking up where we left off last time at Hebrews chapter 6 and see what we can learn about avoiding the pitfalls of cultural Christianity today. We'll begin with the first eight verses. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls in it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So the first three verses of chapter 6 is actually the author's uh Final bit of commentary on the last three verses of chapter 5 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil Hebrews five twelve through 14 we did this two weeks ago and then he goes on to describe those basic principles of the oracles of God in these first three verses here that we just read he says repentance from dead works which, of course, is the leaving behind of sin, turning back toward God and His will, which we find in Hebrews 9.14. Faith toward God, trusting that He exists and will continue to act and will fulfill His promises and will save us from sin, which we find in Hebrews 2.3 and uh, 6.13 and 9.28 and chapter 11, verse 1 and chapter 11, verse 6 instruction about washings. This is most likely a ceremonial Jewish washings, not Christian baptism, given his wording here in the original language and the audience that he's writing to, which we find in Hebrews 9.10. He talks about the laying on of hands, which was a gesture that usually accompanied prayers of healing and prayers of blessing and the designation of someone in the church to an office or a specific task. We see that in Acts six six and thirteen three and first Timothy four fourteen and second Timothy one six. And then we also see the laying on of hands in reference to the coming of the Holy Spirit as well in Acts eight seventeen through nineteen. And then he says the resurrection of the dead. The Greek uh, terminology here, the original language is plural, which suggests that this is a reference probably to the future resurrection of the many, right? Which we find in Daniel 12, 2, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. And then finally, he says eternal judgment, which refers to God's final judgment of all humanity once Jesus returns, which is referenced in Isaiah 33, 22, among other places throughout Scripture. In other words... Even though you guys should be teaching this stuff by now. Even though you should be teaching these basic tenets of the gospel to others. We're still having to teach them to you. We're still having to feed you milk. Some of you have yet to consume. You've only tasted it. You should be teaching it by now. You're failing to become mature in Christ. He's simply finishing his thought here. You understand from the previous chapter Again, which we covered last time in depth. So I won't go into that anymore today other than uh, what I've just mentioned. And then the author launches in, which ties in with this, of course, to what has become uh, probably one of the most hotly contested or debated passages in all of New Testament scripture. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. And the key to understanding this statement in this particular letter is in understanding who He was writing the letter to. All right, the the letters to Gentile Christians... Uh, the epistles of Paul, these were fashioned by very, uh, different, in very different ways than this letter to Hebrew Christians, whether it was Paul or not. It's written very differently. These were Jewish men and women who were professing faith in Christ, and yet some of them were turning away from the faith, returning to the old covenant worship that they'd grown up under. So keep in mind, they've spent their entire life being taught that in order to be in right relationship with God, they must obey the law. And then along comes Jesus and he says, hey guys, you're never, ever, 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 ever going to be able to obey the law. In fact, you've unequivocally proven your inability to obey the law on your own. And over and over again, we see that throughout your history. So listen, I've come to do for you what you cannot do for yourselves. And since I am the fulfillment of the law, then all that you have to do to be in right relationship with God is come into a right relationship with me. And yet it was was so simple. Not easy, by any means, but simple. It was so freeing. It was so liberating, so almost too good to be true for these Jews who had spent their entire lives under the law that some of them were never really willing to accept it. And so many of them never really did. They never actually came into a true relationship with Jesus Christ. They loved the idea of being a Christian more than they loved Jesus Christ himself. And so when the pressures of life and the Jewish culture around them began to bear down on them, even though they had come into the church and been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift, keep in mind, tasting something and consuming something are two very different things, and shared in the Holy Spirit, they witnessed firsthand the truth of the Word, the blessings of God, the Word of his spirit and his people as participants in the lifeblood of the church and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, they still fell away because their desire for acceptance by their Jewish culture was greater than their desire for Christ himself. The author talks about it all the way back in uh, chapter three, verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ. He says, for we have come to share in Christ If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In other words, those of you who didn't hold your confidence in Christ firm to the end never actually came to share in Christ to begin with. You tasted the truth but did not consume it because they were more committed to following their culture than they were to following Jesus. He goes on to say in verses 7 and 8, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces the crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God when you drink it in. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Who's he talking about? The same people that Jesus was talking about in Mark 4, 18 and 19. Those among whom the truth is sown among thorns. Those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. You see, cultural Christians never truly stop following the world, while authentic Christians never truly stop following Jesus he said my sheep hear my voice and I know them they follow me I give them eternal life they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand John 10 27 and 28 you understand that doesn't mean that we're perfectly committed to him at all times it means Jesus is perfectly committed to us at all times Certainly, there are those who reject Jesus Christ. We know that the Bible's clear about that, and they will face final judgment one day. But for those who hold their original confidence firm to the end, He never lets go of them because they've come to truly share in Christ. You see, we fail, <clears throat> Jesus never fails. We doubt, Jesus never doubts. We wander from him. Jesus never wanders from us. Cultural Christianity has one foot in the church and one foot in the world. Authentic Christianity has both feet firmly rooted in Jesus Christ and in his church because we've completely forsaken the promise of this world, which means we have no place else to go. Peter said it well right after most of Jesus' followers left him back in John 6 that we read earlier. Jesus says to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. John 6, 67 through 69. In other words, yeah, this is hard to hear, but honestly, where else are we going to go? We've given up everything to follow you. You're the only one who loves us enough to tell us the truth, even when it's hard to hear. You see, this is authentic Christianity being lived out in the midst of cultural Christianity while people are leaving the faith in droves Because suddenly following Jesus is no longer popular in the current mood of the culture. The authentic Christians look around the world and say, where else would we go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Honestly, who else can we follow who will tell us the truth even when it's hard? While the core spiritual and theological moorings of cultural Christianity change with the spiritual and theological moorings of pop culture, the core spiritual and theological moorings of authentic Christianity never change. Why? Because Jesus Christ never changes. Which means the only response For those who are authentically following Jesus Christ, when the culture around us tempts us to abandon our faith, the only logical and honest response is, where else am I going to go? No one else has the words of eternal life. No one else died for me. No one else resurrected from the dead to prove that it was all true. And yet, you want me to follow the whims of a culture that reinterprets truth according to whatever happens to be popular at any given point in history, while the words and truth of Jesus Christ have remained unchanged for 2,000 years. Are you crazy? Where else am I going to go? And of course, we falter. Yeah, we fail. We fall short of perfection, but we don't completely abandon our faith and walk away from Christ because we've already abandoned everything else. Which means for the authentic Christian, there's nowhere else for us to go. That's why the author... Is questioning here the validity of the faith of those who are walking away from Christ and His church to begin with, as we'll see. Let's keep reading verses 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For his people, the author, after expressing a dire warning to his church, and I know that's a hard word, by the way, he encourages them with all the love that he can muster. In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have still shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. Listen, Uh, on a personal note, I completely get this part of the letter. I feel so compelled to share all of the truth of Christ with you even when I know it may sting us a bit and yet at the same time I want so desperately for you to be encouraged because I love you so much and you can hear the love and encouragement for God's people in the author's voice as a sower of the truth. Someone who loves them enough to tell them the truth, even when it's hard. And yet at the same time, he encourages them to continue living lives like the one that Jesus lived, which is why he says we desire each of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope till the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises because unlike cultural Christians who even after their profession of faith in Christ continue to live like the world authentic Christians live like Jesus lived which by the way has always been a counterculture lifestyle always you see when you when you give joyfully and generously even out of your own need when you serve out of a compassion for people instead of a religious compulsion, when you allow yourself to diminish so that Christ might shine all the brighter in your life, when you prefer others over yourself, when you give away all that you have and all that you are for the sake of the call of Christ in your life, when you love without limits and give without demands, when you die to yourself and point out all that is left for the cause of Christ, when you forgive without conditions and accept people in all of their brokenness, when you give dignity to the undignified, respect to the disrespected, hope to the hopeless, love to the unlovable, and light to those who are lost in darkness, you will quickly find yourself in the minority. Because most people, although willing to give some of themselves, will never give all of themselves. And yet Jesus calls us to nothing less. This is one of the hallmark differences between cultural Christians and authentic Christians. Cultural Christians live for themselves, like most of the people in the world, while authentic Christians die to themselves for the sake of sharing Christ with the world. It's the difference between people who have actually been fundamentally changed by the gospel and those who have not, even though they claim to be. In Revelation three fifteen and 16, Jesus says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This passage was written to the church in the city of Laodicea, which was on the banks of the Lycus River, but the waters of that river were muddy and completely undrinkable, and so the city had a system of aqueducts built that piped in water from two other cities. About five miles away to the north was the city of Heropolis, which had and still has today these wonderful hot springs full of minerals that bubbled up from the ground, which were used therapeutically like a hot tub. And so one set of aqueducts piped the hot water in from Heropolis, except that by the time the water traveled the five miles to Laodicea, it was no longer hot. It was lukewarm, and at that point, uh, the therapeutic benefit of the water was lost. Because it was so rich in minerals, it made people sick when they tried to drink it. Then about 11 miles away to the southeast was the town of Colossae, which was famous for the cold alpine streams that flowed down into it from the nearby snow-capped Mount Cadmus. And that water was wonderful for drinking. And so Laodicea had a set of aqueducts that piped in water from this very cold mountain from Colossae, except that after traveling the 11 miles through the Turkish heat, The cold water was lukewarm by the time it reached its destination. And so Laodicea had become famous. For it's lukewarm water, which was useless for drinking and useless for therapeutic purposes. And so in this revelation passage, Jesus was saying, I wish you were either hot or cold because either one of those options would be wonderful and useful. But because you're lukewarm, just like your water, I will spit you out of my mouth. And the word spit in verse 16 is really far too polite because the actual word in the ancient Greek is emio, which means to vomit. Jesus is literally saying, I will vomit you out of my mouth just like your water makes people vomit when they try to drink it. The thought of being vomited out of the mouth of Christ is terrifying to me. It should be. Authentic Christians approach God out of an overwhelming sense of awe and wonder while cultural Christians approach Him when it's convenient or expedient to their personal desires. Author Chuck Colson writes, fear of the Lord would not rank particularly high on the list of modern church growth strategies, yet we can feel that awe pulsating through the pages of Acts. The sense of worship and reverence, the conviction that Christ had risen and would return, the vibrant, absolute joy of their faith, it was a faith based on a series of heart-stopping paradoxes. God become man, life out of death. An intimate, glorious worship of the Lord they loved with holy fear. So filled were they with this awe that they could face a hostile world with holy abandon. Nothing else mattered, not even their lives. For the church in the West to come alive, it needs to resolve its identity crisis, to stand on truth, to renew its vision. And more than anything else, it needs to recover the fear of the Lord. Only that will give us the holy abandon that will cause us to be the church no matter what the culture around us says or does. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. Okay, the gospel threatens our entire way of living before we become followers of Christ. It is supposed to. Everything, is supposed to change once we begin following Jesus Christ. And this was certainly evident in the church in Acts, which Colson points to in that quote. At one point, the apostle Paul is preaching the gospel in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 to the masses of lost people who had been worshiping the Greek goddess Artemis. his name Diana in English, whose temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And when those people responded to the gospel message, they began confessing their sins and publicly Burned the modern equivalent of six million dollars worth of pagan religious books because those books no longer held any truth for their lives. Why? Because they were authentically changed people. Their hearts no longer belonged to Diana or any other false god, they belonged to Jesus Christ now, and as a result, they were forever changed changed by the gospel and the power of the Spirit of Christ living inside of them. And they were turning away from their entire way of life, their routines and their former ways of thinking and their ways of making money and their ways of worshiping and on and on. They were changed people. Listen, authentic Christians are changed people. Remember, Jesus said, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot, were that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. In other words, Jesus says, I can see by your works. I can see by what you do, how you live your life, that you've not been changed by the gospel, even though you claim to be. You're lukewarm, just like all of the other unbelievers. And listen, he said that to the church. The sign of an authentic Christian is that your life has been fundamentally changed by the gospel. It's not that you fundamentally change to become a Christian. It's that becoming a Christian fundamentally changes you. To the point that your life actually begins to resemble the life of Christ. Which is decidedly counter culture. Let's finish the chapter for today, verse thirteen to the end. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the author says there are two unchangeable things, namely God's promise. And the oath that guarantees it, which should be a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. In fact, he says that hope should be so strong in us as authentic Christians that it becomes a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. You see, cultural Christians find their hope in this world, authentic Christians find their hope in Christ alone. John Calvin once wrote that the heart of every human being is an idol factory. <laughs> I've said it before that although human culture constantly changes, human nature never changes. That is, until we have an authentic encounter with the living God, which fundamentally changes us. Otherwise, our nature. We'll always pant after the things of this world, even after a true conversion. We all know that we still struggle, right, with the endless offering of idols available to us in our culture. The difference when you have the Spirit of God living inside of you is that you now have the power to overcome that old nature. Which means our hope... Our hope is no longer wrapped up in whatever feeble promises this world can offer us. No, our hope is now in someone so much greater than anything we could ever find in this world that it actually anchors our souls. Listen, if your hope is in politics, good luck. Because your hope, no matter where you stand politically, is going to alternately soar to the heights and sink to the depths from just about one moment to the next. If your hope is in money or material things, if you haven't figured it out by now, no amount of money or material things will truly satisfy what your soul is aching for. Just look at the heartbreaking list of rich and famous people who take their own lives year after year. If your hope is in human relationships, your hope will eventually be shattered because human relationships, you may not know this, but they involve human beings and human beings will fail you. You will fail them at times in your life. You see, the only hope that can ever actually anchor our souls is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. By the, word, uh, by the way, the word anchor uh, in verse 19, it's the same Greek word used three times in Acts 27 to refer to a literal anchor. The point being that this isn't only a hope that we have in Christ, it's a, that's a strong hope. It is a reliable hope. It is a stable hope a reliable basis for living. Even the non-Christian philosophers of the ancient world seem to understand the worthlessness of anchoring our hope in anything less than that which is truly virtuous, even if we disagree on what is truly virtuous, which I'll tell you seems to be lost on our culture today. Plutarch, the ancient philosopher born in Greece some 15 years after the resurrection of Christ, strongly criticized the sheer inability of those who lived at the mercy of their own passions to be able to live any kind of stable life whatsoever. In his uh, famous work Moralia, it's a collection of ancient essays, he quotes a piece of poetry saying, The spirit yields and can resist no more like an anchor hook in sand amid the surge. In other words, the person who gives in to life's urges in defiance of reason or virtue has no more stability in their life than the hook of an anchor lodged in loose sand. Likewise, the first century Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria refers in his writings to virtue as the stabilizing force in a person's life, comparing it to an anchor that is firmly embedded in a safe place. You see, every one of our lives... Every one of our lives is anchored in something. And if that something is anything other than Jesus Christ, you're wagering all of your hope on whatever this world and the people in it can provide for you. That is a fool's errand and it will leave you empty every single time. Dr. Armand Nicolai Jr., he's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He's also the editor of the Harvard Guide to Psychiatry. He wrote 20 years ago about the rampant increase in depression in contemporary American society. Some 11 million patients at the time currently needing treatment and over 250,000 attempting to take their own lives each year. He writes that relational dynamics, both on a personal and international level, which make up the basic nature of life, have remained constant over time. How then, the professor asks, do we explain the explosive increase in depression and hopelessness within our society as we enter the 21st century A.D.? He then points us to the undermining of spiritual resources in the past few decades. He says, historians and social scientists tell us that we have fewer spiritual resources to draw from than at any time in Western cultural history. Some say that our culture has forsaken its spiritual roots, that we live in an overtly secular society without even the pretense of spiritual values. Many young people today feel that their cultures fail to provide answers to questions of purpose and meaning and destiny. We fail, they feel, to provide some reason for hope, The consequence is that we're now in a cultural crisis and living in what is being called the age of despair. We hear of our spiritual vacuum and our crisis of meaning. You see, without Christ... Modern society is increasingly trying to define who we are and what we're about based on little more than our current circumstances, our personal preferences and whatever happens to be culturally acceptable to the masses at any given point in time which will never be adequate because there's no eternal hope in this world and what it has to offer. Yet cultural Christianity, although acknowledging the gospel as a meaningful religious pursuit, fails to actually anchor itself in the eternal hope of Christ because it is wholly unwilling to pay the price that authentic Christianity demands. And so honestly, I'm afraid today that in much of the American church, the truth about Jesus Christ is being sown among thorns. Those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it's proving to be unfruitful. This is the very essence of cultural Christianity and it is a blight on the church today. And listen, listen, this is not a problem the world created and it's not a problem the world can fix. Now this one is on us. The church... For allowing a feckless, powerless, ineffective version of the gospel completely useless for bringing any meaningful change in anyone's life to be spread largely unchallenged by the body of Christ for far too long because we were too afraid someone might be offended if we told them the whole truth about Jesus. And in our watering down of the gospel, we've bred generations of cultural Christians who couldn't articulate even the most basic tenets of the gospel if their lives depended on it. We don't have time to discuss the latest Pew Research Center's findings on the state of Christian beliefs among Americans today, but you should read it. It is staggering. Okay, look, it's time for the days of the American church being neither hot nor cold to end. It's time we began telling people the truth about what Jesus actually demands from those who dare follow him. It's time we stop hiding behind our fear of how people might react when we teach them exactly what Jesus taught about himself. This is our watch. This is our time. This is our mandate and we are his people and we're responsible for what we do with this church while we're here. So let's not waste one moment of the time we've been given offering people anything less than the pure, unadulterated, authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only gospel that can keep your faith firm to the end. It's the only gospel that can ever fundamentally change the hearts and minds of those who receive it. And it is the only gospel that can anchor the eternal destiny of human souls in the hope Of Jesus Christ alone. This is authentic Christianity. The only true foundation for the church to stand on, and the only true hope for this world to ever change. Let's pray.